I've got the pleasure tonight of introducing to you Wing Commander Norman Macmillan. Many of you will know the history he has already written, and he's going to give us some more of it tonight. I've just learned from him that the history of two air wars has been written by him and will be published next month. Meanwhile, he's going to give us some history direct. Wing Commander Norman. <laughs> Tonight is the first round-the-world flight, 1922. Perhaps I should add to that title that we didn't uh, complete the circuit. But it may interest those who do not know how this world flight first came about, or this particular proposal. In mid-October 1921, Sir Henry White Smith of the Bristol Airplane Company told me that a Major W.T. Blake had written to the company asking if he could travel to Madrid in one of their aircraft. So Henry asked me if I would take Blake as a passenger in a Bristol fighter I was then flying out to the Spanish Army Air Force. I agreed, and that is how I first met Wilfred Blake at Croydon Airport. Blake was then air correspondent to the Daily News. His object was to see and report on the Rift War in Spanish Morocco. After I had handed over the Bristol fighter in Madrid, uh, we went on together, reached the Spanish front line and no man's land beyond it, and had to run back again in an adventurous and amusing journey about which I have no time to tell you any more tonight. From the end of 1921, I was in Barcelona with the Escuela Aeronautica Naval, the Spanish Naval Air School, and leaving there in April, was invited to become the chief flying instructor of the Spanish Army Air Force in Madrid. I accepted the invitation, subject to first visiting London on other business. When passing through Paris, I bought a newspaper and read that Captain Sir Ross Smith KBEMCDFCAFC, who captained the first Vickers Vimy, which made the first flight from England to Australia in 1919, and who had proposed to attempt a flight round the world in 1922 in a single-engine Vickers amphibian flying boat. And Lieutenant J.M. Bennett, AFM, MSM, who had flown as a sergeant mechanic in the Vimy to Australia, and was to accompany Ross Smith on the projected world flight, had both been killed when their amphibian crashed at Brooklands on April 13, 1922. Two days later, I met Blake quite accidentally in Piccadilly. He had just conceived the idea of forming an expedition to fill the gap left by Ross Smith's death so that Britain might still be first to fly round the world. He had been promised some of the money he needed and invited me to come in as pilot of the expedition if his plans reached fruition. I agreed, provided I first returned to Madrid to arrange release from my obligation there. We discussed the equipment required before I left for Spain after completing my own business affairs. In Madrid, I explained the new development 
and the one of his officials readily understood my desire to take part in what we called the Dalla Vuelta del Mundo expedition. Uh, I arranged to teach as many pupils as I could until I received a cable recalling me to London and did so at my own expense, asking for neither pay nor expenses. The army engineer officer, uh, Major Palanca, which is Spanish for stick and quite appropriate to aeroplanes, uh, was worried about tail shimmy in his dual-control Bristol fighters. Uh, I found this was due to the removal of a cross bracing from the fuselage to install the second rudder bar and showed him how to cure the trouble. I have sometimes wondered if that was the real cause of the Bristol fighter crash shortly before in which three British pilots, Richardson, Ortweiler and Milne, were killed at Quattro Vientos Aerodrome outside Madrid in a Bristol fighter. During my brief stay in Madrid, I made many good friends in the Spanish Army and Air Force who were glad to see me when I returned there some years later in another capacity. I have always liked the Spanish people of all classes, and I speak from experience of having had Spanish workmen working under me. Blake cabled me that affairs were complete. There was no airline south of Paris then toward Madrid. I returned by train. When I reached London, I found that about ten days remained before the already publicized date of departure of May 24th, chosen chiefly because it was Empire Day. But haste was necessary if we were to reduce climatic risks along the route. The route could be chosen for a flight round the world then. There was only one, although it could be varied slightly between some points. It was determined by the short range and slow speed of contemporary aircraft. Nor had reliability then reached the stage where it was practicable to fly too far from contact with one's fellow men. Our aircraft could cross the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans only by following the natural land bridges, the Kuril and Aleutian Island chains, and the wider-spaced Greenland, Iceland, Faroe Islands staging points. Beyond Calcutta, few airfields then existed but there were good ports onward to Japan which favored seaplanes for that sector. No single aircraft capable of making the journey was obtainable, so the route was divided into four stages. Stage one, London to Calcutta, and stage three of 3,620 miles, Vancouver to Quebec, being overland routes, were allotted DH-9 two-seat day bombers converted to three-seaters. This is a picture of the DH-9 day bomber in its original bomber form. You will see it is a two-seater uh, fitted with uh, the usual gun mounting in the rear seat for the observer, and uh, it looks uh, a very prehistoric airplane to eyes accustomed to the streamlines of today. But it was a reasonably good aeroplane in its time, although on actual war work it was underpowered, and in the independent air force commanded by the late Lord Trenchard, its losses were extremely heavy. The stage 
One planned route was 6,352 miles, but deviations caused by climatic conditions, the need to reach airfields where special facilities existed, and official administrative demands in some zones all extended it greatly. Stage two from Kolkata to Vancouver, 9,900 miles, was the longest. It was to be flown in a ferry 3C float plane, two-seater reconnaissance bomber, likewise converted to a three-seater. For stage four, Quebec to London, 3,820 miles, we had an F3 twin-engine flying boat whose range was about 800 miles, cruising at about 70 knots. We had some additional petrol carried in the aircraft by means of extra tanks. Although a lumbering craft with a wingspan of over 100 feet and sluggish controls, she was as good a seaboat as any aircraft of her time. All the aircraft were second-hand, originally built for military purposes. The DH-9s and the F-3 were supplied by the aircraft disposal company from surplus government stocks. The C-3 was supplied by the Ferry Aviation Company, who had used it for demonstration work. Plans had moved into overdrive during my absence, and I was disturbed to find that no arrangements had been made for me to test the aircraft. Only one would be ready by May 24th, the DH-9, wherein we were to leave Croydon Aerodrome, and I would have no opportunity to fly even that one before taking off on the actual flight. I raised this as a serious matter at one conference, and the rejoinder was that we must keep faith with the public over the announced starting date. More important in my mind were the needs to cross India, if possible, before the monsoon, and to cross the Pacific Island Bridge before fog and ice set in. But I knew only too well from experience what could happen with untested aircraft. I pointed out the risks that might result from starting the flight in aircraft, which had not been fully tested under the load conditions they would have to carry. I said we might lose more time in that way than we should lose by a postponement for adequate tests. Prophetic words. But pressure to start on Empire Day was strong, and reluctantly I was persuaded to the policy of tests on the flight instead of before it. Looking back, I am certain that a postponement, even until 1923, would have been wise. All equipment could have been well tested and properly prepared by our own team. The best time of year could have been chosen. There would have been time to assess the route thoroughly. But the premature announcement of departure precluded all that, and I am sure that no one concerned appreciated the immensity of the extra risks we faced by attempting that flight with preparations which were crammed into so brief a space of time. Another later British expedition with more time for preparation failed to cross the Kurile Island chain. Two years after our attempt, four aircraft of the United States Army, fitted with interchangeable land and float plane undercarriages, with all the backing the U.S. Army and Navy could provide, found the going so tough that only one of the four completed the flight. 
Perhaps if we had not been so obsessed by the thought of rivalry, especially American rivalry, and uh, with some of the spell of publicity, we might have taken more time. But the threat of rivalry was real and drove us on to a 1922 starting line faster than we should have gone. We had a great amount of work to get through in the few days that were left. On May 15th, I flew Blake from Croydon to Bewley and 110 horsepower Lerone Avro 504 GEAYC to see the then Lord Montague Bewley. We stayed overnight in the beautiful Abbey Palace. I still remember the portrait by, I think it was Labory, the father of President Lord Semple's first wife, of the lovely Lady Montague which hung on the stairway, magnificent against the bare stone wall. Thanks to our ministry generosity, I put in five hours, twenty minutes practice flying with Flying Officer Carey in an F-5 flying boat at Isle of Grain Air Station. On the afternoon of the day before our start, Flight Lieutenant Ray flew me from Grain to Croydon. Next morning, I passed a medical board so that my pilot's speed license had a full six months to run. On May 24th, while waiting at Croydon for our expedition DH-9, I made a practice trip in another aircraft disposal company aircraft with an engineer as passenger. There were a myriad other things to do, conferences, an official send-off luncheon, passport and visa formalities, press interviews, visits to the works where our aircraft were being prepared. Every day was crowded. Blake looked after the paperwork, including maps, airfield plotting, letters of authorization, while I looked after the aircraft. When we climbed into our DH-9 at Croydon, she had just been flown by Captain R.H. Stockham, who I'm delighted to see her tonight, the, then the ADC test pilot, but it was not flown at the load we had to carry. Even as we taxied out for takeoff, a man ran alongside, brushing a final dash of paint on the fuselage. Uh, the original Air Ministry serial numbers of our two DH-9s, which were given the civil registrations of GEBDE and GEBDF, were H5738 and H5652. Both were built in London at Hammersmith by the Alliance Aeroplane Company Limited of Cambridge Road. For this lecture, I have tried to establish completely reliable data for the DH-9, but variations occur in figures given to me from different authoritative sources and also in published data. There are variations in the span, there are variations in the length, there are variations in the engine power, and there are variations in the loading. The explanation may be that slight variations did exist, for DH9s were built in 14 different factories, and it is quite possible that small differences occurred. Our two aircraft had other divergences. Two extra fuel tanks under the upper wings fed by gravity into the standard fuel system, raising our cruise duration to about six hours. But in the tropical heat, we lost fuel by evaporation. Uh, a spare wheel was attached beneath our fuselage. The fuselage behind the pilot's cockpit was modified to take two seats. Its deck was hinged to starboard and was locked on the port side by a massive sliding rod. A drift indicator was mounted on the port side of the fuselage, outside the middle seat where Blake sat. Now, this is a picture of the Sidley Puma engine, which uh, 
we used in the DH-9s, it was rated at 240 horsepower, but uh, that was at 1500 RPM, but it was also rated at a higher rating of as much as 290 horsepower at a rating of 1700 RPM. Well, we never reached 1700 RPM, and I believe that that figure really applies only to the original prototype engine. Uh, the engine suffered from various defects, uh, which uh, vitiated its complete reliability at that power, and uh, I think all the subsequent production engines were in fact derated. One set of figures given show 260 horsepower at 1500 RPM and 246 at 1400 RPM, but they apply to the same engine which have been credited with the 290 horsepower. Personally, I don't accept these figures for the engine we flew, which I am quite sure did not give more than 240 horsepower. This is a side view of the same engine. It's a, a vertical six engine with direct drive to the S-screw and uh, two carburetors which were either Claudel, Hobson or Zenith. In our case we had the Zenith carburetors which were very simple indeed to deal with and uh, generally speaking we got quite good running from it but short life. A drift indicator was mounted on the port side of the fuselage outside the middle seat where Blake sat. Uh, this is another view of the same engine. A locker was built into the fuselage. Now here you can see the sliding canopy for the two rear seats and here is the hinge point for the rod which passed through to lock it. The hinge on the other side was permanent. Here we could unlock and hinge up the rear canopy to make it easier to get in and out. It also helped to improve the streamline of the aircraft, but with the two open cockpits there was considerable air drag even then. You'll see in that picture uh, Malin's in the rear seat, myself in the front seat, and Blake standing alongside the fuselage in front of the G. The picture was actually taken at Shaiba RAF airfield at Basra. Here again is the same aircraft with the canopy lowered and locked in position with what I called a, a, a massive rod. You can see that it's no mean rod for that job. And uh, we are here in our three cockpits ready to leave Shaiba airfield at Basra. A locker was built into the fuselage behind the rear seat to carry our personal kit. Cameras and films, very pistol and cartridges, personal firearms and ammunition added more weight. Relative to the DH-9 bomber, we carried about 600 pounds overload and had considerable extra drag built on. The standard DH-9 honeycomb radiator protruded below the fuselage above the engine. At Basra, I had to have a, an extra 160 square inches of surface added to the bottom of the radiator to keep the engine from boiling in the summer heat. Until that was done, I couldn't run up the engine on the ground before takeoff. 
but had to taxi and take off immediately the engine was started. Nor could I climb toward the sun without boiling, but had to climb down some until I had reached a sufficient height to level off and then turn on to course. That extra depth of protruding radiator, course, added still more drag. The crew. Uh, Blake was the leader of the expedition. He was responsible for finance and ground organization not involving the aircraft maintenance, which was my responsibility. He sent out press reports daily, and he had a five-year exclusive right to the story of the flight in book form. Equipped with a second compass and a drift indicator and duplicate maps for navigation, he could aid me when that was necessary in flight. But as I had for five years been always my own navigator, I found self-navigation a simple problem over the ranges we flew in those days. Blake was also to act as a relief pilot should that be necessary. He had been a pilot in the RFC during the First World War. And he had also been a wing adjutant. I never heard him speak of his experience as a pilot, and I did not know then, nor do I know now, how much flying he had done as a pilot, nor on which types of aircraft. But his services in that capacity were never needed. Uh, even when my left foot was injured through the collision of an Italian Air Force tender with a telegraph pole near Brindisi, aerodrome, I painfully piloted GEBDE on to Athens, where the Greek Air Force doctor ordered me to rest, and we stayed two days until he passed me fit to go on. Uh, I was sole pilot throughout. The third crewman out of Croydon was Lieutenant Colonel L.E. Broom. He was to act as cameraman, and he had had previous knowledge of the Curile and Aleutian Islands on the ground, which would have been useful had we reached that area. But we had some 12,000 miles to travel to reach it, and I never understood why he was chosen. He had no knowledge of flying or of aircraft. He was over six feet tall and must have weighed well over 200 pounds, probably a good 240. He was cramped in his seat because of his size and found it difficult to handle his camera and his pictures were unsuccessful. Although part of this lack of success may fairly be attributed to an unsatisfactory instrument. From my point of view, his excessive weight so far aft was a terrible handicap. Uh, the DH-9 took a run of about 350 to 400 yards to rise from Croydon Airfield, or about twice the distance one would ordinarily expect from a DH-9. In flight, the engine ran well, but the aircraft was tail-heavy. Our centre of gravity was too far aft, and had she ever spun, she would have been a devil to recover. Uh, on the way to Paris, Broom wanted to photograph the chalk cliffs of Dover as a parting shot of England. Uh, when I landed at the Bourgeois Aerodrome, three hours, six minutes after takeoff from Croydon, both my arms were stiff and cramped with the effort of pushing the stick forward to keep the tail and broom up in the air. Uh, he never got his pictures of the chocolates of Dover. It didn't come out. That flight to Paris was really a test flight, for there had been no chance for me to fly the aircraft before it, nor had there been any opportunity to weigh the aircraft with a full load so the shift of CG position was unknown. Now, in Paris, we had to pay the first installment of the price of leaving in an aircraft tested briefly for airworthiness at light load, but not for the conditions in which I had to fly her. We were delayed at Le Bourget for two days, while a mechanic sent over by ADC 
worked to meet my request for two degrees more instance on the tailplane, an amount which I estimated from the load on the stick and the position of the elevators. But this alteration gave the result I expected. I could fly without load on the stick, but found the aircraft less stable fore and aft. It was the lesser of two evils. In any event, we would have been delayed at Paris because Blake developed a septic throat, which had to be lanced by a doctor, and he would not have been fit to proceed much sooner than we did. We flew down the lovely Seine River, where the brothers Gabriel and Charles Voisin spent much of their youth. We wanted to reach Turin, but the high Alps were covered by clouds that were higher than our ceiling, and they filled the valleys too. I landed at Lyon. Next day we left Lyon with a reduced fuel load in order to improve our ceiling on the 175-mile transmontane flight to Turin. We flew to Chambry and Grenoble. Conditions over the mountains were of anything worse. I could find no way through any of the passes. I turned southwest to the Rhone Valley, intending to reach Nice airfield to refuel. While still over the Rhone Valley, we ran out of fuel in our main tanks. I turned on our extra gravity tanks. Soon the engine began to, roughly, began to run roughly and became worse. Our only means of communication was by penciled notes passed from hand to hand. I passed a note to Blake asking him to give me the position of the nearest airfield at Marseille. His note came back that he did not know the airfield position. I turned off the river and steered for the city. The engine was misfiring when we reached Marseille. There was no airfield anywhere about the city. I decided the risk was too great to try to reach Nice with the engine worsening, and I chose the race course of the Parc Borelli at Marseille. There was just room to land between the inner railings of the long leg of the oval track. A pathway across the centre of the oval appeared from the air to be level with the grass. I sideslipped over the nearer rails, straightened, and touched down. There were no wheel brakes in those days, of course, and had to wait until the aircraft rolled to a stop. Then I saw the pathway was not level. Its cambered sides curved up to about two feet above the grass. It was at an angle to our track. One wheel hit it at about 30 miles an hour, slowed the aircraft, the other wheel hit, and we bounced into the air. Because there was no room, I could not gun the engine to check the stall. Gedde fell heavily, buckled a wheel, bent an ailer on king post, burst of all pitched forward and broke a propeller blade tip before settling back on her tail skid. I think Mr. Grimmett in the audience would be able to appreciate those kind of things. I paced the park Borelli and decided we would not take off, we could not take off from it. If I started from the rails, I would hit the pathway before rising. If I started from the pathway, I would hit the rails. We should have to dismantle the aircraft. I examined our fuel system. In both auxiliary gravity tanks, I found loose solder, and in one, a length of fine chain. These partly blocked the fuel flow. In one carburetor, I found a punctured float, half full of petrol. Here was ample cause for the bad running of our engine. In that engine, which you saw on the screen, each carburetor fed three cylinders, not overall. Two gendarmes noted our names and the aircraft's registration. 
The Sabre airfield was a military one at East, 30 miles to the northwest of the city. While I was examining the engine, Blake went off to telephone the airfield. Next day, a military lorry arrived with mechanics. The Frenchman's ways were rough and ready. Uh, we fitted our spare wheel when they lifted the wings with the backs. While dismantling the wings, the Frenchman cut the fabric in several places, accidentally, of course, uh, and broke some ribs, wing ribs, not their own. They put the wings on the lorry, then seized the tail to manhandle the fuselage to the towing bar. Un, deux, trois, shouted a caporal. The old had a terrific heave and threw the tail right up in the air. It passed the point of no return and flew out of her hands. The propellerless shaft of the engine buried itself deep in the ground and its hollow center was filled with earth, small stones and grass. We cleaned it to the accompaniment of strong words. The mechanics said they did not know our machine was so light on the tail. The French machines were heavy on the tail. The lorry springs were harsh. The road was potholed. When Gabriel reached east, she was a sorry sight. More damage was done by the manhandling than by the landing. We had to replace some of the streamlined bracing wires, which they had twisted beyond straightening, by cables, which required special fittings to be made. The French always used cables on their aircraft for bracing at that time. Blake went off to hurry customs clearance for our needed spares, propeller, king post, carburetor float, some undercarriage fittings and another spare wheel. While he was away, Broom's films were found to be useless. He went to Japan to organize the Tokyo-Vancouver route, and his place as cameraman was taken by Mr. G. H. Malins, who was a professional. It was June 14th before we were ready to leave East. The long stop had its origin in an untested aircraft. For 20 minutes, the engine ran well after we left East. The rigging was faultless, then suddenly the engine began to vibrate. The needle of the revolution counter fell back. Beneath us was hilly ground, ahead the mountainous coastline. I turned back and landed at East. In the oil filter, I found cinders and other foreign matter. All the oil was contaminated. Mixed with it were the bright goldfish of scrapings torn from the bearings. Our engine was ruined. It could not be flown until completely overhauled. This could not be done at East. We did not have the kit. The French workshops had not the tools for British engines. By this time, the second DH-9 was almost ready. The decision was made to send it to us and take the first one back to England for complete overhaul and then send it to Vancouver. Captain Rick Stockton, as he was then, and now Wing Commander Stockton, made a record seven-hour flight to East in GEBDF. Uh, he's just told me tonight that uh, he carried a mechanic with him on the first part of the trip, but the mechanic became air sick and had to be dropped off at Lyon. For photographic purposes, uh, at least we added a stroke to the bottom of all the F letters on the fuselage and wings, and the aircraft became G-E-B-D-E. We filled the tanks for an early start the next morning. The French military aircraft then used olive oil for their engines. Our oil came from Marseille in sealed tins. When pouring it into our oil tank, I saw the golden color cloud. I stopped filling and poured a little into my cupped hand. 
Some gritty substance, like silver sand, came from the bottom of the tin. We drained and flushed the oil tank and filtered and again filtered the oil until we were sure it was clean. Then we filled the tank and screwed on the cap. We slept supperless on the hangar floor, rose at dawn, washed at a water tap outside, ate some bread, bully beef and buffalo, wheeled out the DH-9, started it ourselves and took off at 8.5. We reached Pisa after flying at 100 feet over the sea beneath the clouds. In sunshine, the Italians quickly refueled our tanks. They insisted we should see the lovely city before leaving it, and ran us through it in a military car, and then gave us a quick lunch in their mess. The aircraft was ready on the airfield when we got back. On the way to Rome, Blake fell asleep. I landed there at dusk. Rome was courteous, but we were delayed for permits to continue. Our cameras were sealed because we were not permitted to photograph from the air. It was late when we reached Naples. From Naples, we flew over Vesuvius in eruption. Wonderful sight. Choked in the smoke, nearly choked ourselves with sulfur fumes, and were later amused to read some scientist writing a letter in the Times to say there was no sulfur in the fumes, but he hadn't been there, we had. And there's no doubt the, the fumes were sulfurous. We shot up to 500 feet in the heat and then stalled out of it. Bailey's broke the camera seal and photographed the crater. At Brindisi Aerodrome, a deep grass-covered ditch tripped us up, damaged the undercarriage and propeller. No airplane had landed there for months. We found sealing wax, secretine and fabric, an excellent repair kit for slightly damaged wooden propellers. At Athens, the Greeks were charming. The Queen, sister of the Kaiser, came to see us leave and gave us food and fruit for our journey across the Mediterranean. She asked us to telegraph our safe arrival in Africa. Our schedule allowed for a stop to refuel at Bay and Crete, but I flew non-stop to Saloum on the Egypt-Libya frontier in four hours, thirty minutes. We saw one ship near Crete, but after that, no other. In Alexandria, we were again delayed while arrangements were made for our passage across the desert to Baghdad. The Royal Air Force ran a fortnightly airmail service over the route. They followed a track made on the ground by cars, so that should help be needed, a stranded aeroplane could be located near the track. If it strayed from it, its occupants might be lost and die of thirst. The regulation was that no aeroplane not carrying wireless was allowed to fly the route without a wireless escort. We were also requested to carry extra tins of fuel and supplies of water, which we could not do because we had neither the room nor the load capacity nor did we have any wireless. So we had to rendezvous with a Vickers Vernon twin-engined mail plane at Ziza, 20 miles south of a man, on the edge of the Hedjaz Railway, a place that figures in Lawrence of Arabia's Seven Pillars of Wisdom. In Alexandria, we were invited to lunch with the High Commissioner, Field Marshal Lord Allenby. Uh, I was still wearing a pencil on my left foot, which had been damaged at Brindisi, and Allenby was a stickler for exactitude and correctness in dress. He looked at my foot as I approached and asked me why I was wearing a plimsoll. When I told him, and he knew it was not what would now be called a beatnik attitude to clothes, he was a delightful host. We met the Vernon at Ziza, 
Flight Lieutenant Teddy Hilton in command. We left there next morning at 04.23. Over the lava fields of the western desert the track was faint. Hilton lost it. He landed on a huge mud flat, about three miles in length. I came down after him, over the lava edge which gave an indication of height, then saw a blinding reflection from the almost white surface of the flat and touched down on a billiards table smooth surface. I took Hilton up in the DH-9 and we circled spirally upward until we reached 7,000 feet and from there he spotted the track. We both took off again and flew on to landing ground O. The landing grounds were lettered outward from Palestine and numbered outward from Baghdad to show which command was responsible for the fields. There was a landing ground about every 20 miles, simply a natural level space marked out by ground marks and uh, bearing its central numeral or letter. Ziza had its name within a central circle. At landing ground O, Hilton's Vernon became completely unserviceable for the time being and we decided to go on alone. As the day grew hotter, I found I was losing water by evaporation and I landed at El Jid, the central part of the track midway between Palestine and Baghdad for water. There we were lucky enough to find a, a tribe of the Aneza Arabs encamped at the adjacent oasis. They came over the hill to us and brought us water in goatskin gerbies with which we refilled our water after allowing the engine to cool. They gave us curdled camel's milk from goatskin bags, killed a sheep for us to take for food upon our journey and we wrapped its bloody carcass in our precious spare fabric. Three young Arab girls came from the oasis clad in calico smocks which fell from their shoulders to just below their knees. When I climbed into my cockpit preparatory leaving to leaving they wanted to see inside the airplane. I hoisted them up singly by hand and uh, one after the other they sat side saddle on the fuselage deck and threw their arms around my neck and looked over my shoulder into the cockpit. One of these girls was one of the most beautiful I've ever seen. One of the others was about the most ugly. When the tribesmen thought the girls had played about enough, one of them came forward and threatened to flick them across the bare calves with a whip, and reluctantly they departed. The chief sheikh showed us a letter he treasured, signed by T.E. Lawrence, and written in Arabic. We flew on and landed on another landing ground, X, at sunset, and slept on the ground. In the morning, when the sun came up, almost immediately it rose above the horizon, its level rays shot along the ground, and heat immediately began to burst upon us. Before that, from about three o'clock in the morning, the temperature could get so very cold uh, through the radiation from the desert ground, which there was nearly 3,000 feet high, that we had to get up in the small hours of the morning and run around to keep warm. But when the sun came up and we rose from underneath the wings, we saw climb out of holes on which we had lain overnight scorpions and great spiders, spiders some eight inches across, which jumped in leaps across the ground. 
The extreme cold before dawn had awakened us and saved us from the perhaps too close attentions of our underground bedmates. Now these things, I think, are the sort of thing that people who fly today never know. Flying of today spans the world, takes one over thousands of miles in a very brief time, but one sees so very little of what the world is really like when making these jet trips at 35 and 40,000 feet at 600 miles an hour. And the SST transport is going to give even less chance of that. I personally am glad that I flew in the days when we really knew what the Earth was like when we came down close to it. The remainder of our journey across the desert was uneventful. I found the track easy to follow and we reached Baghdad that day. The hot Mesopotamian sun, was not called Iraq then, became our enemy now. I found I could not fly into the sun at low heights there without the engine water boiling. As I have already said, the RAF at Basra added to our radiator surface and that cured that fault. But we are now undertaking tropical trials for which our aircraft had never been designed. Darkness overtook us while flying along the Persian Gulf and I first landed alongside the shore on a sand and scrub level patch. I always enjoyed pulling off a successful forced landing. Uh, the heat of the Gulf was appalling and we could not climb into cooler air. But we reached Karachi with the fabric of our upper surfaces tied down with government red tape to prevent it from ballooning into undesigned shape where the stitching had broken with the humid heat. At Karachi, the RAF took over and quickly overhauled the airframe. But we now faced another problem which we had not expected. Our direct route across India had been made impossible by the monsoon rains. Great stretches of land were flooded. The Indus River, one of the early centers of early civilization, had overflowed its banks and inundated vast areas. We were given first an alternative route further north, and then this was cancelled in favor of another route still further north because of yet more extensive flooding. So we found ourselves diverted northward into the Sindh Desert, perhaps the hottest part of India. You may remember that General Napier, when he had taken possession of the Sindh province, telegraphed one word to notify his success, the Kavai, which in Latin means, I have sinned, S-I-N-N-E-D. <clears throat> we landed at Jacobabad for fuel, but could find no Chakadar there. We landed at Sibi, further on, where the heat baked up from the ground and the sun beat pitilessly from a brazen sky. The run was short, and I found I could not take off from Sibi after nine in the morning. Once, when coming into land, after trying to fly to Quetta, which we had to do to obtain petrol, I was unable to pass through the Bolan Pass because of mist which filled all the mountain passes. Convection currents at Sibi landing ground caused the DH-9 to stall at about six feet up. She landed heavily, falling through the hot air and slightly damaged an undercarriage leg and the tailskid. The rubber bungee cord of the shock absorbers of those days also perished in the heat and soon lost the resilience, placing great strain on the fittings. Railway workshops at Sibi soon repaired our slight damage. 
Indians working on our aircraft went down with heat stroke and a temperature exceeding 125 in the shade. But there was no shade. The sun temperature was 175. Metal was too hot to touch. The local doctor, without telling us, prepared three beds for us, but we did not need them. The RAF sent down a work party from Quetta by tender with fuel for us. Some of the RAF men also went down with heat stroke, and soon the local hospital was full. We started off refueled for Lahore, only to find that now our main tank, immersed fuel pumps, would not deliver petrol. This is the picture of our aircraft at Quetta, just preparing to leave. Notice that the troops wore sun helmets in those days. Today they don't wear sun helmets. They take salt tablets instead. And by the having discovered in the interval the principle of osmosis, sun helmets are not really necessary now in tropical countries as they were once believed to be when people didn't have the sense that animals had to go to salt licks. Uh, this is the picture of our aircraft taken at Bandra Bass on the Persian Gulf. A lot of patron sightseers sitting around uh, waiting to see us depart. This is the illustration. This shows the fuel pump uh, of the de Havilland 9. It was a pump which was designed by Airco uh, during the First World War and uh, it was a very simple apparatus and uh, it was very reliable. There were two pumps one to each tank. The DH-9 had two main tanks between the engine and the pilot. One was alleged to hold 68 gallons and the other was alleged to hold 74 gallons. And these figures have been published in authoritative works. Uh, they're also given by the Air Ministry, but the makers tell me that the figures are not really reliable because there were variations in the tank sizes according to different makers and uh, there were also variations in the quantity of petrol that might be left in the tank which the pump could not uh, deliver and consequently the, the actual fuel value of those two main tanks cannot be accepted at any definite figure. Now these pumps operated by air pressure on the windmill fan as the aircraft flew along uh, the windmill fan, through a gear, rotated a vertical shaft, and that vertical shaft in the pump base at the bottom uh, was off-center. And the base of the shaft was slotted, and through the slot, uh, a bronze slide moved backwards and forwards, shuttled backwards and forwards, uh, with an eccentric motion, so that fuel was drawn into the pump at one part of the rotation and uh, delivered out of the pump at the other part of the rotation. The two tanks could be used individually or they could be interconnected so that in the event of one pump going wrong, uh, the other pump uh, could then deliver all the tank from both, all the petrol from one tank um, and draw from the other tank until the full amount of fuel was exhausted. So that it really was a, a fuel delivery system which had got a, a safety device in its design. But, unfortunately, and one would not expect both pumps to fail together, 
If one failed, the tank interconnection fed fuel into the tank where the good pump was immersed. But unfortunately with us, both pumps failed simultaneously. And uh, the only thing that was left to us then uh, was for Blake, in his cockpit, to work vigorously at a, a semi-rotary petrol pump which drew fuel from the main tanks when I turned the cock for that purpose and delivered it to the gravity tank. But that was much too hard work for anyone to do continuously in the conditions in which we were flying of uh, heat at that time. So we had to go to Quetta after all because that was the only place where we could have these pumps repaired. It was impossible for the repairs to be done locally at Sibi, although we had managed to make the slight repairs we ne needed to our undercarriage um, and our tail skid at the local railway workshops there. I found that Quetta airfield had a run at that time of a thousand yards. And at that height, when we were ready to leave, we all got aboard, but the DH-9 would not rise with her full load. I had to fly her back down to Sibi, solo, and Blake and Merlins were flown down in RAF Bristol fighters. We refueled at Sibi and left next morning for Montgomery, where we had to land for fuel. I found our engine was then using more fuel than the standard consumption, because I was forced to fly from the time I met the extreme heat of the desert at full throttle because of our very heavy load. The aircraft's speed range had fallen because stalling speed had risen and top speed had lowered. Our duration was not much more than five hours then. From Montgomery, after an enforced delay caused by a monsoon rainstorm turning the soil into mud from which we could not rise, we took off when the sun dried the ground and reached Lahore. At Lahore, we again had to have further repairs. The fabric had to be restitched to the wings again. The tailplane had to be rebraced. The fuselage internal bracing had to be tensioned. And new fabric had to be glued to the propeller. We wanted to fly as straight as possible to Kolkata, but the Air Officer Commanding India, Air Vice Marshal Webb Byrne, uh, who was always known as a bit of a martinet, demanded that we should come to his headquarters at Ambala. That meant another deviation. At Ambala, we had recurring trouble with the fuel system. The rubber tubing had perished internally and took the filters. It was spare tubing obtained from the stores at Ambala, perished almost as soon as the fuel ran through it. It was not until a sergeant fitter wound wire internally in our replaced rubber tubing that we secured a respite from this trouble. The new tubing fitted at Mbala from store was only good after it was wired internally. At length we departed from Mbala, but the filters choked before we reached Delhi. I first landed in a muddy field near the tomb of Safdar Jung. Might well have been ours too. But the clinging mud acted as a brake and saved us from running into a ditch, a really deep ditch. Merlin's, at my request, had hung far back over the rear of the fuselage to keep it down, and we halted before falling into the ditch. We could not fly from that field. We had help from the army, the Leicester Regiment mounted guard. Colonel Wigram lent us his aid and gave us encouragement. 
Mr. Rouse, the chief engineer of the Public Works Department, offered help and labour. We obtained railway sleepers to lay a track over which to wheel the DH9 to a road. Sleepers were laid in the mud, and the aircraft wheeled over them, and then they were lifted from behind and placed in front again. We worked until dark, then after dark, by the light of violent electric storms. The lightning gave us continuous light. Rain streamed down. We were all wet, plastered with mud, tired, but we worked on. Wigan was wonderful. He encouraged the Indian workers with cheering words they understood. At last the DH9 stood on the edge of a lane hard stand. The Lester's mounted guard. We went off to find some sleep at midnight. We were back again by seven o'clock in the morning after having had breakfast. I explored the lane and the road it ran into. The road gave me a straight run, but only about two feet of clearance between trees on either side, with stone walls around their boles. The wind blew light across the road, but there was no alternative place for takeoff. I placed the DH-9 on the windward side of the road and climbed in alone. It was impossible to lift anyone else off from that place. My wings were held while I ran the engine. Then I waved, let go. She ran straight until she lifted. Then the wind drift caught her. I was ready for it with a stick across. The drift stopped after about two feet. I flashed past the trees with not more than 24 inches to spare on either side. And then I had enough speed and rose above them into the freedom of the air. I landed at Delhi Airfield four miles away. Blake and Millens came on by car with our gear, and then we were off to Agra. Delhi Airfield <coughs> only offered us about 500 yards run, and it was not enough with our full load. I paced into the scrub beyond the airfield boundary on one side, and walked across the squelching surface into the scrub on the other, and found that I could get an extra 200 yards through the scrub on one side and about 150 yards on the other one. So we manhandled the aircraft as far back into the scrub as we could, and then we went off. We were still hard on the ground when we reached the further boundary of the airfield and charged on into the scrub. At the end of the 200 yards of scrub, there was a small bund, an earth mound running along the edge to prevent water from moving in. We missed that bun by about six inches. But now that our petrol system was free, because that had been the cause of our forced landing at Delhi, we had our filters choked again with the remaining rubber that had been left in the system and had not been finally cleared out. We ought to be able to move along faster now with a good fuel system. When we reached Agra, we saw the airfield, but not the town. Over the top of the town, a mushroom cloud had centered and poured down rain. Then we were over the Jumna River and a deluge ourselves. The water streamed from the trailing edges of the wings like a waterfall. Our undercarriage literally brushed the treetops. How we flew in that nightmarish cloudburst, I do not know. Then the engine began to thump. Poor Puma. It had been going full throttle through all kinds of trials. Now it was about to give up. The revolutions dropped. I turned back toward Agra. When we reached there, the storm had centered above the airfield. We saw the town, but no airfield. 
I flew round in circles above a depression in the ground, whereon we might have crash-landed without hurt to ourselves, but an end to the DH-9. At last the first edge of the airfield appeared, and I turned to it. I still had full throttle, but now as I approached the land, the engine revolutions fell still more. As I glided in, I saw the field, which had been dry when we had first passed, and now turned into a lake. As our wheels touched, a sheet of water splashed over our top wings. She stopped, and I ran up the engine. She gave a clanking maximum of 850 revolutions instead of a usual 1,250 on the ground. The Somerset Light Infantry were there, and they guarded our D-89. We learned that the Maharaja Bharatpur had a private air force formed by aircraft given to him by the British government when the war had ended. Colonel St. John, his political agent, presented us. We looked a bedraggled lot, but the Maharaja was most kind. He had Puma engines still in their cases unused. We could borrow one to fly on to Kolkata. We had a spare propeller to replace our, our own, ruined by the weather we had flown through. His own air force would change the engines. They did, very efficiently, in the open. This is a picture showing the discussion uh, prior to my taking off from Roberts Road at Delhi. You'll see uh, Colonel Wigram on the extreme left, myself Flake, uh, and various other helpers alongside us. This is a picture taken at Agra of the changing of the engine by the Maharaja's Air Force. Uh, they were under the command of uh, Sergeant Gopi Lal, who was a very efficient fellow indeed. And uh, you'll see there are the Lesters in the sun helmets and the uniform shirts. And uh, the others are Indian helpers who were there to help with the manhandling uh, of the derrick and the taking out of the engine. The engine was lifted out uh, on uh, that form of, uh, of derrick and uh, the new engine was installed in exactly the same way, very largely by manpower rather than by machinery. But it worked very well indeed and we had quite good results from the new installed engine. The propeller case we laid on the ground, uh, we opened it at night but uh, did not mount the propeller that day because darkness fell too soon. We put it on the following morning and I ran up to the new engine. Something told me there was a flaw in the running of it. I didn't know what, just something wasn't right. I shut down and went round to the front of the aircraft. I touched the propeller. Its surface crumbled in my hand. Its whole interior had been eaten away by white ants in the night, leaving what appeared to be a perfect shell on its boss. It appeared to be a perfect propeller, and yet it was completely ruined. Another propeller solved that problem, and then we were away. Blake was ill with appendicitis, and the doctors would not let him fly on from Agra. He went on to Kokata by train, was operated on in the general hospital there. This is a picture of myself with Malins preparing to leave Agra and uh, with our friends of uh, the Maharaja's forces bidding us goodbye. Uh, there was one amusing story about his Air Force which I think is worth recalling. Uh, when we were there, there, there was a, a, a major, a former major of the RAF teaching his Air Force to fly 
Quite a number of his uh, projected pilots and observers had flown, but none had flown solo. And one day the Maharaja came along and he looked at one of the pilots and he said, uh, have you flown solo? And he said, no, sir. So, well, uh, how many hours have you flown? The man told him he'd flown about ten hours, Joe. Right, well, I command you to take up that Avro and fly solo now. And he looked at another uh, individual and he said, you're an observer, aren't you? A very heavy, heavily built man who weighed a lot. You're an observer, aren't you? Yes, sir. And I command you to go as his observer. So there was no option to that. They both went up, they flew up, and they came down. They didn't land. They made several shots at landing. But they didn't finally make up their minds to land until they'd burned up all the fuel. And then they came in and made a perfect landing at the end of it. Well, Mellons and I flew on alone, landed at Kanpur, cleaned the filters, refueled, and left for Allahabad where I landed on the same parade ground of which Amy Johnson damaged her moth eight years later. It seemed to me there was plenty of room for DH9, certainly. Off again, we went to Gaia. There, dusk was falling. No aerodrome was visible. The strips had been taken in that morning to wash them because they were so muddy. I scouted around, saw what was the airfield, but it was partly awash and I didn't recognize it as an airfield and I decided to land on what appeared to be the best place. The only other available space was a sandbank down by the river, which might be flooded at any time. I chose a square of ground surrounded by tall trees close to the town. I got down in a near vertical side slip, thanks to the good old Gosport days, turned and leveled off and was down. Then suddenly stood in our nose when almost slowed down. A lemonade bottle flew out of her locker, just missed Merlin's head, and buried itself in a wing. We jumped out. One half of the propeller was buried in the ground. It was cotton soil, black, notoriously treacherous, but it was soft. When we pulled the tail down, I saw by the light from a paper lantern that someone held that the propeller was whole, but the buried blade was bent, about four inches out of truth. Again, we had a terrible time manhandling the DH-9 off the cotton soil onto a pony track which ran round the Maidan beside the trees. There we left her for the night, under a police guard. Next day, I prospected the pony track, decided I could just take off with Malins aboard. I removed the wingtip skids because of stone culverts over drainage ditches. We hauled her to the extreme end of the pony track. Then came a monsoon storm. The pony track became like blue. I waited. The sun returned. Slowly, the track dried. I said goodbye to our helpers and climbed aboard. Mary's helped others to start the engine. Again, I asked for human brakes to hold us. At full throttle, I waved them away. She gathered speed so slowly. The trees brushed our stab of wingtips. The port wings swept low over the culverts. The tall trees, about 120 feet high, towered in front of us. The trees on our right became a blur. Those ahead towered higher into the sky. Then we were off the ground. I held her down. Twenty feet from the trees, I banked her round and started to spiral upward within the square of trees. Simultaneously, 10,000 Indians broke the police cordon and filled the Maidan, their white robes making everything else indistinguishable. Before we reached reach Calcutta, an immense storm barred our way. 
Too far to right and left to fly round, too high to fly over. We had no blind flying instruments. As I came to it, I saw a small opening as if it were a railway tunnel. I entered it. The clouds closed in about us. We could not see our wingtips. Behind, the propeller swirl cleared the air. I flew by looking back. There were bumps, but not immense ones. Suddenly, after about a quarter of an hour, we emerged into clear air. Looking back, I could not see where we had broken cloud. There was no opening visible, yet we had passed through that cloud at only a hundred feet above the trees. Clouds became broken. Detached rainstorms fell on the land, but navigation was easy. Soon I saw Dum Dum aerodrome and landed. From Dum Dum, Blake flew to Kolkata Maidan with Malins and me. Our time, or rather my time, for I was the only one who had flown throughout the whole route from Croydon to Kolkata, was 92 hours 55 minutes. Test flights at intervals had run up to an hour 7 hours 36 minutes, a total of 100 hours 31 minutes. At Kolkata, we were faced with a change of aircraft. A ferry three-seat float plane, converted from the two-seater to a three-seater, awaited us there for the onward part of the journey. The late Ronnie Kemp had taken charge of its erection, and uh, the Royal Air Force had supplied uh, mechanics to help to assemble the aircraft. <clears throat> it was erected in a shipbuilding firm's yard at Garden Reach, downriver from Calcutta. It was partly ready by the time we got there and saw it. As soon as it was ready, we had to get it into the water and test it. This is the three of us at Dum Dum Aerodrome. Blake met us there, and this photograph was taken when Millens and I landed, and Blake joined us. The ferry 3C seaplane was fitted with a 352-horsepower Rolls-Royce Eagle 8 engine, which you see here. It was not an inverted V, it was an upright V. And uh, that is a picture not of the actual engine we used, but of another model, an earlier model. Uh, we used a model which was equipped with starting handles to enable the engine to be started. That is the same earlier model. This is a picture very like the model we used. Here you see a starting handle for starting the engine, although we had two handles, not one, one on either side. So we we're even slightly later than that particular model. Now, this is a picture of the same engine from the propeller boss end, showing the reduction gear housing, showing the exhaust manifold, overhead camshafts, which got rather a habit of letting oil run down the conduits and uh, down the sparking plug leads to the distributor and causing uh, misfiring to take place. That was not an uncommon trouble with this particular engine. It was one of Rice's designs with nearly everything duplicated so that if anything went wrong, there'd be something else to carry on in the typical Rolls-Royce fashion. The engine must not fail. 
but it was rather a difficult type of engine for the kind of primitive conditions we were flying in because it was equipped with no fewer than four carburetors and uh, with four magnetos. So we had not only plenty of things to help with reliability, we got a very large number of things also to go wrong. Uh, this is a picture, and I think it's rather an unusual picture, a unique one, of the Rolls-Royce Eagle 8 engine fitted in the fuselage of a Ferry 3C float plane. You'll observe that the float plane ailerons were operated by means of a very large diameter wheel, which operated through a chain and cables, and um, the stick moved only fore and aft for the elevator, and uh, the aircraft was equipped with quite large rudder pedals. The general design of the fuselage is quite clearly shown there. It was the normal fuselage of its time, largely built of wood and covered in fabric. This is a view of the pilot's cockpit in the standard Ferry 3C. Our cockpit arrangement was, or rather my pilot's cockpit arrangement was the same as you see here. This is a starter magneto for boosting the spark to the plugs while the engine was being turned by hand to make it easier to start. You see the usual instruments here for pressures and, and engine revolutions and airspeed. The compass was fitted low down on the right-hand side. Over here we have the uh, controls for throttle and, and uh, spark and uh, for adjustment to the carburetion. Now, this is also an interesting photograph taken many years ago in the works of the Ferry Aviation Company showing the manufacture of the floats of that date. Unfortunately, there is no extant photograph of the type of floats which we used on our Ferry 3C. These are later floats, and uh, you will see from the slot in the underside of the float, just at the step, that there's room there for a wheel. And uh, also there's a, a, an after false knife step at the rear end of the float. These floats were uh, floats for the ferry flycatcher amphibian in which the wheels were mounted centrally in uh, the floats. But it does give one quite a good idea of the type of construction of the float. Fore and aft, there are transverse bulkheads. You can see the transverse bulkheads there. And also, in some of the floats, uh, there was also a fore and aft bulkhead running to give additional, not only additional strength, but additional safety from the possibility of water entering and destroying the buoyancy of the float. This is a picture of our Ferry 3D float plane taken at Calcutta outside the shipyard at Garden Reach. Now, I think you will see here, the, uh, you can probably distinguish the number, the maker's number is, is uh, F333. Now, F333 was an aircraft which was delivered by the Ferry Aviation Company in June 1919. So the date of our taking it over in Calcutta, it was just slightly more than three years old. 
It was originally delivered to the service fitted with a 250 Sunbeam Mari engine and was later converted to a Rolls-Royce Eagle 8 engine and was uh, used for our particular purposes and converted from a, a, a two-seater to a three-seater with the two rear seats fitted in rather a large cockpit at the, the rear. Now, two things are important from the point of view of my experience with this aircraft. One is the floats, uh, which you see have one short step, and um, <coughs> a tail float, which was built with a plywood exterior, and two wingtip floats, which were of wooden internal construction covered in fabric. The main floats were built of ash members and spruce members with transverse and longitudinal bulkheads and with inspection ports running down the fore and aft length of the float to see the condition of the interior of the float and also to enable any water which might have been entered to be pumped out. The length of that float unfortunately has not been kept as an exact record. There are no extant drawings of these floats in existence so far as I can discover. But I have scaled it up and knowing it as I do, the float is approximately 17 feet long. I speak of the main float now. The main floats, each main float is approximately 17 feet long. It might be as much as 17 feet 6, not more. The width is 2 feet 9, and uh, the maximum depth at the point where the step is reached is approximately 16 inches. Well now, um, that was the type of aircraft which had been sent out to Calcutta to take us over a 10,000 mile course of very largely untried flying areas. And uh, we had no spares of any kind for the aircraft at all. We launched the aircraft. Here you have another side view of the same aircraft having its final preparations at the hands of the RAF aircraftmen who were excellent fellows and did everything they possibly could to help. You get a very good impression here of this float and uh, I would like you particularly to notice that the curvature of the float on the undersurface is important because at a later stage of this flight we are sitting on the bottom of the float and not above it. Uh, the underside of the float had what are called rubbing strakes, small strips of square timber about half an inch square uh, running the full length from the front of the float to the step to prevent the float from being damaged when it was manhandled onto trolleys or when it was beached on a slipway. And when we were sitting on the underside of these floats, we had to sit on these rubbing strakes and with the very sharp edges we found them ex extremely uncomfortable things to sit on. Here you see a, a picture of the float plane being brought down the improvised slipway for launching in the River Hooghly. The slipway was simply formed by laying steel plates on the ground 
and the float plane was manhandled down the slipway to the water's edge. Here you see it just about to enter the water. It's not a very good picture because the background of the shed uh, makes it rather difficult to see the float plane. But uh, you can realize that the conditions for launching were quite primitive. This was, in fact, the first seaplane ever to fly from the Hooghly River. And uh, you see it here taxiing out for an initial trial during which I carried two of the RAF men as passengers. Now this picture gives uh, an excellent idea of the taxiing position of the aircraft on the water, the water line on the floats. Now these floats in that position are fully buoyant. Um, they are able to carry the full weight of the aircraft with about 100% safety factor in the buoyancy of the float, which is clear of the water. And um, <coughs> that uh, is quite important for the safety of the aircraft, for its ability to rise from the surface, and it was also important to us at a later stage in our uh, flight. Now, we found that we were ready to take off, but my inspection of the floats showed that the starboard float was defective. The inner plywood bulkheads of the float had perished in the tropical heat, presumably when they were shipped out as deck cargo, and they had gone completely rotten. Uh, I could push a finger through the bulkheads, and I also found that the float was very seriously uh, deteriorated. If we were to do that, it meant that the flight would be delayed until the following year. So I decided to take a chance and press on, hoping that even with the defective float, I would be able to make port each time and land where help would be available and where we could quickly beach. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. We also arranged with the port health doctor, Dr. Elms, to bring down to us uh, supplies for us to take with us on our flight. This shows the flight we intended to make from Calcutta to Akgarb. They stretch across the open bay there, northern end of the Bay of Bengal, was 200 miles. And uh, ordinarily we should have made the trip quite comfortably at a cruising speed of about 90 knots. But um, we started out, there was a monsoon warning out at Calcutta, but we had to press on, otherwise we'd run into fog and ice on the, the Pacific Bridge crossing. So we had to press on. We did, and I found that by the time I reached the mouth of the Bangara River, which was only 120 miles from Calcutta in the Sundarbans, and over very, very dense tropical country, absolutely written with reptiles and animals of all kinds, crocodiles, tigers, everything you can imagine and don't want, an occasion like ours. I, I found that by the time we reached the mouth of the Bangara River, we had already taken two hours for a distance of 120 miles, although we'd started off with hardly any wind at all. So the wind was actually at that place blowing at a wind strength at 600 feet of about 50 miles an hour, and our forward speed was reduced to about 50 miles an hour. 
That meant that it would take us four hours to cross the open bay into the teeth of the gale because it was blowing dead ahead. And I decided that the risk was too great with a defective float. I'd have done it had we had sound floats, but with that float, no. So I changed course from the mouth of the Bangar River to uh, Chittagong, which lies here on the Karnafuli River in northern Assam, just north of Burma. <clears throat> in making that change of course, I decided to keep as close as possible to the northerly islands, and we passed over a series of mudflats, very different to the mudflats of the Arabian Desert, which were solid. These were mudflats which were oozy upheavals from the sea uh, of the seabed, which in some cases uh, stayed above the water long enough to have growth form upon them and eventually to have trees and form into islands. But many of them never reached that stage. Some of them came out of the sea and some were washed away again in storms. Now, this part of the northern end of Bay of Bengal is absolutely a mass of creeks and rivers, each flowing down from the rivers that drain into the northern end of the Bay of Bengal, chiefly from the delta of the Ganges, but with other smaller rivers adding their waters too. And uh, it was, at that time, a very, very remote part of the world, even though it was so relatively near Calcutta. Now there is a helicopter service which flies down and lands on this island here. A helicopter service was started to land on this island only a few months ago, providing regular communication for natives which formerly were entirely cut off. And that, to my mind, is one of the greatest advances that aviation has been able to make to civilization to be able to bring communications to men who have lived for generations in such remote and almost inaccessible parts of the world. It brings to them not only communications, it brings them medical aid, it brings them a form of life and living which is approaching that of what we ourselves regard as civilization. Well, we took off and we reached the Bengal River Dr. Elms, unfortunately, went down with fever overnight and never brought our food supplies to us. So all we had when we left Calcutta were a box of cigars, some cigarettes, some pipe tobacco, two gallons of drinking water and a drinking water tank, and a, a tin of toffees consigned to some princess in Rangoon from a, a well-wisher in Calcutta. Well, we ate her toffees, she never got them. But when I reached the mouth of the Bangara River, I decided the only thing to do was to change course for Chittagong. We did. We passed over this mudflat island here, and then we reached another mudflat island shown on our admiralty charts as Lukadir Char. We had passed it, still going well, the engine running beautifully, and we got just beyond it to about this point here, when the engine just quite suddenly and unaccountably stopped dead. We were flying at 600 feet into a 50 mile, 60 mile an hour gale. The sea was running about 8 to 10 foot high, which is more than one normally tests a ferry float plane of that type in. And uh, I had no time to fiddle with anything or try to 
do anything to the engine. There was only time left to concentrate on making a landing in that really big sea. I turned quarter turn and I faced absolutely bang into wind and uh, dead into the sea and uh, I touched with the rear heels of the floats the first crest. We skimmed to the second crest and then to the third crest. By that time we'd stopped. That meant we'd stopped in a distance of something like certainly not more than 40 feet and perhaps less. Well now, having stopped dead on the top of that crest, we went down into the trough and the next wave came right over us, smack, smash. We heard something crack behind and we swallowed quite a lot of water and we got thoroughly wet. And I yelled out to Balens to jump out at once and we both jumped out on the wing and I switched over to the gravity tank and I told him to crank the handle for all he was worth and I cranked my handle and we got the engine running again on the gravity tank. The next thing was to be able to turn out of that wind that was blowing. There's only one way to do that in a float plane of that type and that is to dip one of the wingtip floats under the water to act as a rudder drag to be able to swing around. So I yelled to Balins above the noise of the shrieking wind through the wires to get out on the wingtip and be a wing walker and till he dipped the float down, he dipped the float under the water and then I gave a full throttle and full rudder. There's both a water rudder and an air rudder. And uh, she swung round, pirouetted round on the immersed wingtip float and we were then uh, going downwind and down sea. And as every yachtsman knows, you ride much more easily that way than when you're riding into wind. We came back to look at the char, and when I got over the flatter water and we were running over just small waves, about 12 or 18 inches high, I accelerated until we were at hydroplaning speed in case we struck some underwater object. And uh, when we got well in towards the shore, I swung around into wind shut the engine off and I found the float bottom sink onto the mud. And there we were self-anchored. Well, I haven't time to go into all the detail of the story of what happened, but we were there from uh, Saturday morning, Saturday midday, the uh, 19th of August, until we left there at midday on Tuesday, the 22nd of August. We started off again on a direct course for Chittagong, which you see here, and uh, again the engine ran well until we got out over the open channel to the southeast of Sandwich's lowest point and there the engine suddenly began to run roughly again. There's no hope of curing it at all. There's nothing we could do. We gradually lost height. I saw the smoke from a steamer in the distance but it's too far away to be able to make it and we came down until we landed on the sea. The sea was not rough and we made a very good landing and uh, I decided the only thing to do, uh, it was impossible to clean out four carburetors, deal with four magnetos and all the safety devices that had been built in by Rolls-Royce, I decided the only thing to do was to taxi to the mouth of the Carnifoli River at Chittagong here and hope that a cable which I had sent out from Lukadir Char by a native runner who came to us in a dugout sampan uh, and who had promised to take it to, to a, a cable station right away up among the island creeks and channels 
that the uh, result of that cable to cutter would be that, as I had asked, lookout be kept for us from Chittagong, from the mouth of the river. Unfortunately, the cable didn't reach Chittagong as I had sent it, and uh, the uh, a very abridged version was sent, and it didn't arouse any alarm in the minds of the harbour master at Chittagong, already uh, a commander of the Royal Indian Marine was searching for us on our original course right away down to Akyab, back across the course you saw before, and then completing the, uh, the triangle back to Chittagong. But of course he was much too far to the south. Well, Commander Cummings, who was the harbour master at Chittagong, read this bridge cable which merely said, Ehrman leaving Lookadier Char today, please obtain Petra and cable me arrival blade. Well, uh, it, uh, he just thought, well, I suppose the Mr. Tide will be long tomorrow, or perhaps the next day, anyhow. Why didn't they give me a, uh, an actual navigational uh, check for the locality where they were? Why didn't they give me some proper information? Certain jolly were right where they are. Well, of course, our original cable gave all that information, but it wasn't transmitted to Chittagong as, as asked for. Uh, the result was that we taxied on, and after taxiing for about two and a half hours, a monsoon storm blew up, the sea grew in strength, great waves began to build up, and uh, already the starboard float, which had been leaking, had practically filled with water, and the float plane would not ride the waves properly. Then I saw two large green seas coming towards us, and uh, they broke over us, smash, smash. The float plane wouldn't ride over them, and uh, I saw that our propeller was broken into two useless stumps. Well, that was the end. Uh, that was the end of that particular uh, effort to try and reach Chittagong. We stayed there until about nine o'clock that night. Uh, after we'd both been sitting on the higher wing to try and balance the float, which was leaking and causing this float plane to list to one side, uh, we gradually found that the float plane was turning over and it lurched on a wave and went over slowly and for about five minutes the wings on the port side were pointing straight up towards the heavens and uh, about five minutes after that they too rolled over and we were upside down and clambered over until we sat on the bottom of the floats. Well, that was about 9 p.m. on Tuesday. We drifted about on this course which you see plotted here up and down with the tides sometimes getting near Sandwick then edging away from it just when we thought we were going to make land, being pushed further away till it was out of sight. Uh, we saw a ship in the distance. We saw a ship which navigated towards us in the night. We tried to signal, but uh, we were unsuccessful in drawing their attention. On the Thursday, about midday, we saw the sails coming up from the south, and we watched the sails grow larger until we saw it was a brig sailing dead towards us. And... Um, he said, they must see us. They'll run us down. Don't forget, we'd had nothing to drink and nothing to eat. Precious little since we'd left Lukadir Char. Nothing since we'd left Lukadir Char. Precious little bit for a few chapati cakes from some of the natives. That was all. Some brown sugar and palm leaves and a little suspiciously uh, typhoid um, type of milk which we received on the wooden jar from the natives at Lukadir Char. Well, we were pretty hungry, of course, by this time, but we thought this ship would certainly see us and run us down. 
Unfortunately, we didn't know the local superstition of the native sailors there. They believe that if anyone is shipwrecked on the sea, it's the will of Allah. And it's for Allah to get them out of the predicament, not for them to interfere with the will of Allah. And um, if they do interfere with Allah's just and proper retribution for any silly ass of shipwrecked at sea, well then, uh, they are then saddled with the responsibility for these people, if they're injured or incapacitated, or if they die on their hands, they're responsible for the relatives for the rest of their lives. So they won't take the risk. And when they came within about 200 yards or so of us, we saw them change course to the right. They steered round us in a semicircle. They looked at us as they approached us from the poop. And as the sail passed us, they ran forward to the bows to get as far away as possible. They looked at us from the bows. And we shouted at them in croaked parched voices. And we fired 22 automatics to the sea. And Malins grabbed a, a, a signal flag and and waved it, which we'd made out of a bit of fabric we'd rescued and a piece of aluminium tubing that had come up. And um, I had been down below trying to detach one of the floats to try and paddle ashore, using it as a as a pontoon. I had been unable to detach the floats with an ordinary pocket kindic, kindic spanner, which wouldn't shift the boats at all. And um, no doubt we looked a very queer pair. And afterwards, when the brig was later found by the harbour master of Chittagong, they swore that we were a couple of shaitans, their name for devils, which had seen dancing on the sea and they never even seen the floats. They said we were dancing on the water. Well, probably went far wrong because our floats were painted white and no doubt with the scintillations of the light from the sea, they probably did not see the floats and probably thought we were two devils dancing on the water. Well, anyhow, if they were, they, at least they didn't shoot us. They just sailed away and left us. And uh, Millions, the previous night, during one of the very heavy tropical storms, had been washed off the float. I just managed to save him by jumping into the sea and grabbing his hand and grabbing one of the booms until my arms nearly pulled out of the sockets. And then when there came a lull, I managed to pull him in and he clambered up again. There were many instances of that kind. But we gradually drifted into Sandwick. We'd been followed part of the day and part of the previous day by hammer-headed sharks, and twice we'd seen multi-hued bodies swimming around us in great shoals, shoals as big as mackerel shoals in the English Channel. They were beautiful-looking things to look at, but everyone was poisonous. There were sea snakes literally swimming around us in hundreds. And gradually we drifted into sand rip, and suddenly the tide began to turn and we thought we were going out be drifting down the open channel again and then our under hamper underneath us stuck on a shoal and it bumped the tide ran out fast and it stuck on the shoal hard and there we were well we thought perhaps now we'll get ashore to sandwich tonight we didn't know it was sandwich because there no means of checking our navigation except by means of the stars this is my own plotted course which I plotted by means of the stars when I made star observations at night. Darkness was just beginning to fall and seemed no hope of rescue. And suddenly, in the distance, I was in the water, naked, and trying desperately with my King Dick spanner to remove the nuts. I got two of them off, trying to do the impossible job of removing one of those floats, which could require special tools even in a workshop. And I was standing on the underwater wreckage down below us, trying to remove that float, 
when I looked up and saw a launch approaching us. And I knew that this was no superstitious native um, captained craft, but a, a real smart, sleek-looking launch. So I jumped up on the float and I called to Malins, who was nursing a, a badly skin-stripped thigh, which he'd had the skin ripped from when he fell into the water off the float while waving to the brig that passed us. And um, he was nursing that, sitting on the float. I jumped up and I called to him and we both jumped up. I was nothing on. I picked up my trousers and waved them over my head. And um, Malins, he waved the flag. And uh, we watched and we suddenly saw the launch stop and come toward us. And uh, we realized that uh, they were coming to help us. The, uh, there was only one white man on board, Commander Cumming, the harbour master of Chittagong, who had set out when he read in the newspaper that morning, the Kolkata Statesman, which arrived in Kolkata that morning, carrying my full cable to Kolkata, which I'd asked to be repeated to Chittagong. And when he read that full cable, he realized that we were probably in desperate straits, and he hoped he might still be in time. He realized that the first cable, which the bridge cables had been sent, had been sent in some sort of foolish way, presumably to make a good news story in the Kolkata Statesman in the following day, where my full cable was printed. And consequently, he set out at once, cable Blake in Kolkata immediately, but he didn't wait for a reply. He set out in his launch at once, and when he set out over the open sea to make for Lukadir Char from Chittagong, he set out to make for Lukadir Char, where we had been. And uh, <clears throat> he found that the open sea was too rough for his light river launch, so he turned back and the native Sarang, his pilot, native pilot, said he could take him around these northerly channels and down through sheltered water to look at the Achar. And uh, when he was going up the Sandwich Channel, which is uncharted, or was then, probably still is, he realized that he was running the risk of running on shoals with crocodiles and various other unpleasant inhabitants about, and he decided he was rather risky his own navigation of seamanship over the open sea than run the risk of running on a shoal up the Sandwich Channel. So he changed leg again from here to there, then up to there. He changed, took a third course, and his third course to get back to the open channel brought him to within a quarter mile of where we were. And he said when he first saw us, looking through his binoculars, he thought we were a couple of native fishermen fishing from a sample. And the Sarang swore that's all we were. The, you should sail on to look at dear child. But Cumming kept his glasses on us. And uh, he said, oh, these poor devils are maybe natives fishing in a sampan. Because don't forget we're burnt brown. But he said, the sampan's upside down. We'll go and rescue them. And then when he got really close to us, he saw that we were what he was looking for. Because naturally he'd been looking for a seaplane right way up and not upside down. Well... Uh, he, we got aboard and he asked us, we'd like something to drink. The first thing we asked was water. So he gave us water and then he gave us beer and then he gave us whiskey. And then he gave us bacon and eggs and we lay down in the cabin and, uh, well, I slept all right. And Malins was pretty delirious in the, the night. I, I suppose the water, beer, whiskey and bacon and eggs, too much for him. But I survived that. 
In the morning, the following morning, the carriages are shown and stretchers to the Chittagong Cottage Hospital. I had asked them to try and salvage our float plane and tow it into Chittagong if they could, even if it was upside down. They tried to do so, but the tow rope parted in the night, and uh, the last we heard of it was when part of the wreckage was washed up 80 miles further south in the Bay of Bengal. That is how that first attempt to fly around the world ended. Thank you very much for your attention. Well, I think we'll all we've had not only a very interesting but a very exciting evening. You know, it's very nice in those early days to go along and see the world as it is, to sleep with spiders and scorpions, and then go and find your propeller eaten away by white ants in the night. Say nothing of uh, the adventures by sea when they went on by seaplane. I think you'll all agree they're very brave men. Now, we've got a little time before we need to stop. And if any of you would like to ask one or two questions, only one matter would I like to mention, and that is my memories of the dimensions of aircraft and the times of which he spoke. I was on the research side, and when we came to measure some of the aircraft, if there was one or two inches difference in the span, well, they thought nothing of it. So that you needn't be a bit surprised that some of the dimensions were not available when he searched his records to find out what size his aircraft was or parts of it. Now, now for a question. Have we anyone here with piloting experience of those early days in the 20s? I've listened with extreme interest to what Captain McMillan has told us and remember the occasion very well. Um, thing that he had, I would like to ask uh, Captain, uh, Wing Commander Mackman, forgive me, I always think of Captain Paul Mackman, uh, Wing Commander Mackman, when he was on the, look, he hasn't mentioned it, he just sort of dismisses it, but I remember him telling me about it years ago, and they really thought that they were going to die, but Captain Mackman, being a Scotch Perhaps, if I may ask, perhaps you would tell us again what he went through at that period. He knew he was going to be saved, which I thought at the time was very remarkable. Well, in reply to Wing Commander Stockton, who was another of the <coughs> pilots of those days, we both flew to Spain at the same time, and those ventures in the air and about the... Well, I personally was never despondent about being rescued. I've um, been fortunate, I suppose, in my life in um, having what some people call hunches, or whatever you like to call them. I, I call them by a better name than that, personally. And I've always felt that I knew that in even the most desperate situations which I've had to face, both in war and peace, that I did not feel that my time was up. 
And I, I was perfectly certain on that occasion that uh, we were not going to go. In fact, I, I told Melins when we were sitting on the floats on Thursday morning, uh, the day we were picked up, I told him that we were going to be picked up by a ship that day. And when the brig sailed up into full view at about midday and sailed past us, Melins, of course, was terribly despondent because he thought, well, you were nearly right, but not quite. Um, so he really was despondent and um, probably stripping the skin off the inside of one thigh didn't help his despondency. But uh, when he said to me uh, something about that this was terrible, the ship had gone, I said, it doesn't matter, evidently that was not the ship. We will still be picked up by a ship today. And I, I can't tell you how I knew that. I don't know how I know these things, but I, I do. Um, I remember another experience when I was with infantry in the war, and um, we were going down uh, a communication trench to get some supplies. And uh, usually when we got to a, a turn in that trench, which swept round to the left and carried us further than we need, uh, although it was in the shelter of a brick stack, uh, we usually got out and went over the open. We'd done it night after night and thought nothing of it. That night we got down and I happened to be bringing up the rear of the party. And I passed up the word to the leader of the party to stay in the trench. Back came the word, who gave that instruction? I send up my name, so back came again, why? So I had to scratch my head to find a, a, a reason that seemed sensible to the commander of the party. He wouldn't believe in hunches. So I, I remember that I'd been down that trench earlier that day, and I'd seen that the pioneers were working there, and they'd paved it beautifully with nice fresh bricks. So it was better going than the muddy field outside, although it was a little longer way around. So I passed up the word that the trench had just been repaved with bricks that day and it was better going than going over the outside. So we stayed in the trench, that was accepted. And just after we got a little way along that trench, the whole of the open was sprayed by overhead machine gun fire. And uh, I, I don't know whether we would have been lost or whether we wouldn't have been lost, but we probably had a few casualties, at least we should have had. And um, when we got to the end of that trench and... Uh, man who was leading the party turned to me and said, well, if you have any more hunches like that, you needn't tell me why, just tell me you've got them. And um, I just feel that way. I don't, I give no explanation for it, but there must be some form of uh, transference of knowledge of things to come. And uh, I think we may remember a very remarkable book um, written by an airman, J.W. Dunn, called An Experiment with Time. I don't know how many of you have read it. But he offers a kind of an explanation for that sort of thing, which is at least interesting. I, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to it. I don't really quite believe in his explanation. But there must be some explanation. And I leave it with you to work out your own explanation, just as I've worked out mine. 
But I, I would like to say to Wing Commander Stockton that I did not despair. We had no reason to believe we'd be picked up, but I just knew we would. It's your personal experience. Very nice of you. It reminds me of the of a chief officer of a fire brigade during the war. He told me afterwards that when he was on duty, which wasn't every night, the men got in the habit of saying, oh, well, you know, your man's on tonight, nothing will happen. And it didn't, strangely enough. However, um, to return to practical matters, is anyone here who knows anything about the DH-9 and DH-9A? My impression was that that was a very unstable aircraft longitudinally, and I was amazed when I heard the lecturer tell us that he went off with the tail heavy and then altered his um, elevator, his tailplane, so that he could fly it, but he must have been flying with a very narrow margin. It had a dreadful reputation, uh, scientifically or technically, during the early part. Does anyone know anything about those early days of the DH-9A or DH-9? 9 had the vicious characteristics of the early RE-8. The early RE-8 was very definitely longitudinally unstable and directionally unstable, and it was one of um, Professor Lindemann's um, um, object lessons in spinning before he spun himself. And uh, he saw quite a number of them spin, and uh, I've seen the records for spinning uh, of that period, and uh, the RE-8 ranked very high, the DH-9 very low, I mean fatal spinning accidents. The camel ranked very high, although that was usually because uh, people either didn't know it or took foolish risks with an airplane, which played tricks. The camel's longitudinal instability was very marked, and there were times when she would respond precisely to a control movement and other times when she would not respond precisely to a control movement. And uh, I think that that was in all probability due chiefly to variations in air flow. And uh, it may in fact have been due partly to uh, the amount of throttle one was giving, the amount of swirl from the slipstream over the propeller because particularly with the rotary engine with its torque and uh, and its um, slipstream effect from the propeller, it played a very great difference in the um, stability of the aircraft, both directionally and longitudinally. Uh, I, the DH-9A, I flew in various forms. Uh, I think the most interesting DH-9A I flew was uh, with a Rolls-Royce engine. It was one of the early pre-Kestrel engines, one of the F-11 series, which I uh, flew a um, uh, DH-9A with, taking um, measurements of fuel consumption and speeds and uh, other details of engine performance 
And the DH-9A, I found personally, was a pretty stable aircraft. The DH-9 was fairly stable. I had no reason to distrust the one, even after we increased the tail instance, but I would never have spun it. It wasn't an aircraft I'd have spun. Uh, I think apart from uh, any difficulty getting out of the spin, we might have lost the tail, which um, is very inconvenient when one is trying to come out of the spin. Although, um, generally speaking, we did spin uh, quite uh, delicate aircraft. The SUP with one and a half strutter we spun, and that was a very um, frail aircraft. Uh, the Newport 12, two-seater, well, we couldn't stop that spinning. Uh, if you flew blind at all, the first thing you knew, you'd blow the clouds in a spin. And um, the camel, of course, a delightful thing to spin because you could spin down through cloud in a camel. It was the only safe way to come down through cloud in a camel because you didn't know what you were doing. And with a camel, uh, you, you could spin down losing, if you're really spinning thoroughly well, you could spin down the camel losing only a hundred feet per turn of a spin. You could do ten turns of a spin in a thousand feet. And I remember one pupil I had once, I, I, I for a time I was teaching pupils to fly camels, pupils from all the, well, from both training squadrons on an aerodrome where I was then acting as advanced flying instructor in a group flight. And uh, uh, I was very glad to know that I never lost a single pupil. I never had a pupil injured, although they were flying camels. And um, it was just simply due to telling them what to do and what the aircraft would do. And I remember one pupil I had, I told him all about, we hadn't got dual control camels at the time, they hadn't been produced then, but I told him about inverted spinning, normal spinning, left and right spinning, and he was driving on a target one day with rather a boisterous wind from a thousand feet, turning over to one side, ruddering into the dive and shooting up a ground target. And uh, he overdid his turn on the top of the uh, Immel Man and the first dive and he went into a spin, he went into a, an inverted spin. So he corrected very quickly. He'd only done a few hours solo, this fellow, he corrected very quickly. And uh, he changed into a right-hand spin, and then he overcorrected that. The ground was coming rather close, and he went into a left-hand spin, normal spin. And then he corrected that. I was flying, uh, I know he was a thousand feet, because I was flying another machine quite close to him. I saw the whole thing myself. And uh, the wheel, he corrected for his third spin. The wheels actually kicked up the dust from the ground. And... Um, he recovered and went up and flew around again and tried to carry on his diving, but he came in after another couple of shots, rather a shaken man, and I told him to go away and have a have the day off and come back tomorrow. But um, it was really a question of common sense and quick reaction more than anything else in flying the camel, and not taking risks too low. There was a very well-known camel pilot who, uh, who used to roll very close to the ground, and he did it time and time and time again, until one day, well, the camel just lost a little too much height in the roll, and the wing tip touched, and they buried him the day after. But um, that was just taking the last chance. I, we also had another fellow at Wonderfield I was at, who was an instructor, and he had a very pretty game. He used to spin down into a gully until he was out of sight from the aerodrome. And, of course, the 
ambulance was immediately alerted and drove out to um, pick up the remains. And when the ambulance arrived, he was flying out the other end of the gully. He thought that was a lovely game, but one day the camel didn't work right and he, the ambulance did take him away. So I, I, I think, um, Mr. Chairman, uh, uh, longitudinal stability was sometimes a variable factor. I believe it might even have been built into some machines. Unintentionally, of course. Now it is. The main factor that we've learned from the night is the unreliability of error agents. They're the, pu the siddly puma, which was the development of the 230 horsepower BHP, was notoriously unreliable, and that's why Franchard threw it out. So then engineered the Liberty engine into the same airframe. That became the DH-98, which went on for a very great number of years in the air force, known as the 9-act. The things they did with that was nobody's good. They looked like Christmas trees, at least. But the other point was about the Rolls-Royce engine. Have you any ideas of why that factor? I think the first, I think the first uh, failure was due to an airlock in the fuel system. Uh, the fuel system had been modified. The fuel system was very reliable. I had flown the Ferry 3C before uh, in this country. I knew the aircraft and it was a very reliable aircraft normally and um, its ordinary fuel system was quite satisfactory but they had introduced a modification to the fuel system and I think that produced an airlock which caused the sudden stoppage of the engine the first time. On the second occasion when we had to come down it was not a sudden stoppage of the engine but uh, a reduction in power to an extent which made it impossible for us to continue flying. Uh, intermittent um, firing, well, anyone who knows uh, aircraft engines of that time knows that that type of firing could most probably be caused by ignition trouble, but not necessarily. It could be caused by ignition, and the, that particular engine, as I think I mentioned in my lecture, did have a rather bad habit of dribbling oil down from the overhead camshaft, down the plug leads and into the distributor, and it might well have been caused by that. But uh, unfortunately, we didn't uh, solve the airplane, so we had no real means of checking. But I should think that was the probable cause of the second failure. Um, another cause which I found of engine failure, if you're interested, which is very unusual, I discovered it making a, a flight right out across Europe to Serbia in a Bristol fighter, which uh, uh, anyone who knows the aircraft of those days will understand was uh, an air pressure fed uh, fuel system. One pumped air into the tank and the air pressure pushed the petrol out. And um, a very common fuel system. Well, I um, had a great deal of trouble with the 300 Hispano engine in this Bristol fighter. It uh, ran beautifully for a short time and then it began to give trouble. And uh, on one occasion, with it, I was flying over Germany, which I had no right to be doing, because just after the 1922 treaty terms had ended, and in 1923, the Germans refused permission for Allied aircraft of any power other greater than they were allowed, which is about 120 horsepower for a two-seater, 75 horsepower for a single-seater, 
refused any Allied aircraft a greater power to fly over their territory unless they got a quid pro quo the other way back. And the um, usual German method of negotiation, of course. Uh, well, I, I was flying 300 horsepower engine, and the French had been flying uh, 400 horsepower Lorraine engines over and spared Berlin's across Germany to Prague, landing at Fort Nuremberg. And uh, they dropped valve heads into the cylinders and forced landed and were promptly locked up and fined and sentenced, had to pay enormous fines. Well, I was flying over Germany and I had to come down at Fort Nuremberg and I was placed under arrest for about seven days myself. I got away all right. I was, it seemed to like me better than the French uh, because I was uh, my nationality. And... Um, I got away, and then I had trouble with it in Czechoslovakia. I think I first landed in Czechoslovakia altogether about six times. Then I first landed in Austria, and um, and um, then we really got down to it and faced the cause of the trouble, and it was a most unusual one. I never heard of it in any other airplane. Down the, 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 the fuel feed pipe inside the main tank ran down nearly to the bottom of the tank. The air pressure forced the the fuel up that pipe to the uh, junction box and thence to the carburetor. Well, inside the tank, this copper pipe had a flaw and had cracked. So as soon as the air pressure got down where the crack was, the air came through the pipe to the junction box instead of the fuel. And we got a mixture of very weak uh, petrol. Some fuel came through. And the only way we found it was to fill every tank full, and then drain every tank until we saw what happened. And uh, eventually, we drained the, when we drained this tank, the last one to drain, the air came gushing out at the same time as the petrol, and there was a cause of our trouble. Well, these things are most difficult. You can't discover them in the air. They take a lot of time to discover, and I've never heard of anyone having that trouble in any other airplane. One more question, if anyone else wants to ask a question. Well, in that case... I'll ask you to thank the lecture in the usual manner for keeping us interested for so long and so well.